I'm Kelsey. I'm Cassie. And I'm Nolan from SCP Weekly. We bring you news from on-site and off-site. And we share your love for the creative community that surrounds the SCP Wiki. Join us on Tuesdays for new episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, or on YouTube at SCP Weekly. The world we inhabit is not as free, or certain, or safe as you might think. The things that you believe to be unassailably evident are little more than shadows dancing behind a curtain, a masquerade crafted and dutifully upheld by an organization known as the Foundation. The file you are about to hear contains containment procedures, descriptions, testing logs, historical and in some cases first-hand accounts of the anomalous objects the Foundation serves to secure, contain, and protect. Its contents have been thoroughly scrutinized by the Ethics Committee and approved by the O5 Council for release to trusted associates of the Foundation. This is SCP Unredacted. Submitted by Stanislav Nikolaev, 1991. Problem. The danger posed by the amount and magnitude of large-scale aggressors, LSAs, to normalcy in society is growing at an unprecedented scale following the prominent attack upon High Brazil in 1988. While there have not as of yet been any attacks of the scale of the incident on High Brazil, various agencies within Prometheus Laboratories have found the presence of similar entities of extreme size around the world, all of which could pose serious threats to world civilization. It is necessary to create a defense against these threats. However, all evidence suggests that LSAs are extremely difficult to kill and terminate. Only two such entities have been killed. The first of these entities was the Crocoteuthis gigantis, which attacked and destroyed High Brazil in 1988. This entity was only liquidated with the usage of a classified nuclear device used by the Global Occult Coalition, which several international nuclear regulations prohibit the use of. This weapon cannot be reused by Prometheus for various legal reasons. As many of the potential weapons which could terminate an LSA are subject to similar regulations and legal prohibitions, Prometheus must find a weapon which is not subject to such rules. The easiest way to do this is to create a new class of eigenweapon, which will be free from all international regulation. Solution One potential new eigenweapon class which will be able to terminate an LSA is known. In this, the relevance of the second deceased LSA becomes clear. In 1990, the Cetacea beringii killed the Eubrachiura carcinos. A second method of killing a large-scale aggressor becomes apparent from this incident. Another large-scale aggressor, controlled by Prometheus. This, however, presents a secondary problem. The ability of Prometheus Labs to create such an entity is extremely limited, to the point of being impractical. All attempts at growing new specimens of C. gigantis have been met with sudden, unforeseen difficulties and the death of all such entities prior to full maturation. Attempts to create a new LSA from scratch have similarly been unsuccessful. An alternative solution would be to take control of an existing LSA. All methods at doing such require some methods of docility from the LSA, which is completely lacking in all known specimens. Physical methods require subduing the LSA, which is as impossible as killing it. The mental function of all known LSAs are so dramatically different from humanity that psionic control of any is impossible. There does exist, however, one LSA that will be docile enough for Prometheus to modify and take control of, 
the corpse of the Sea Gigantis itself. With appropriate cybernetic and thaumaturgic modifications to repair the damage caused to it by the Global Occult Coalition, and to replace its neural framework with an easily controlled artificially intelligent conscript, the corpse of the Sea Gigantis will be ready for defense purposes. Business Case The modified Sea Gigantis can be used as licensed security for a variety of established investment groups or for in-house security at Prometheus Labs. While the course would be specifically modified for combat against other LSAs, all such modifications will render it effective at fighting almost any other threat with little chance of defeat. As the entity will necessarily be under the control of Prometheus Labs and will be necromantically powered, maintenance will only be necessary upon the cybernetic enhancements. These enhancements will be placed within the body of the entity and protected by the flesh and bone of the Sea Gigantis, ensuring their protection from environmental factors. As such, Little cost will be necessary for the upkeep of the augmented entity. Should the augmentation prove successful, additional copies may be created via the usage of Nalka to hatch the eggs once contained within the entity, which will need to be purchased from Marshall Carter and Dark. Research has indicated that the growth period of C. Gigantis is long, but this may be accelerated through various means accessible to Prometheus Labs. Ideally, all such copies will be weaker than the original, preventing the obsolescence of the original. Use of Funding The primary use of the funding requested will be to purchase the corpse of the Sea Gigantis from Marshall Carter and Dark Limited. While MCND initially demanded 100 million US dollars for the corpse, it's been unsold in the intervening 10 years between the initial listing and now. Storage costs are prohibitive, indicating the price may be negotiable. The augmentation of the corpse will be both cybernetic and thaumaturgic. Both of these will be performed in-house by Prometheus Labs, but will require additional outsourcing in order to meet demand in a reasonable time frame. Cybernetic modification of the corpse will be done with the assistance of Anderson Robotics, who will be contracted to perform several of the necessary modifications in tandem with Prometheus Labs. The cost of this has already been established and planned with Anderson Robotics and will be performed for a total of 10 million US dollars. The second form of modification performed on the corpse is thaumaturgic, the modified C. Gigantis will need to be able to terminate other LSAs, so small modifications will need to be added in order to ensure its efficiency in combat. These modifications will serve to strengthen the scales of the entity, increase intensity of its generated fire, and enlarge the entity. To perform this, Nalka Fleshcrafters will be contracted to perform the necessary rituals. This will cost 500,000 US dollars. Funds for the employment of Prometheus employees from such divisions as Prometheus Bioengineering, Orpheus Biomedical, and Vulcan Engineering will also be necessary, as determined by the desired time frame for the project's completion and the previous pay of such employees. Known Issues The actual process of restoring life to a long-deceased entity is not simple. While the C. Gigantis is well-preserved specimen, it's been deceased for just over 10 years. As such, it may prove stubborn to initial revivification techniques. Alternative necromancers may need to be contracted, or multiple may need to be used at once. The interface between the control system and the neural networks may not be configured properly, preventing full control. As a failsafe to control this problem, an emergency kill switch will be implanted into the brain of the entity, containing a large amount of cyanide. Should the C. gigantis not prove tractable, the cyanide will be released directly into the bloodstream quickly terminating it. The final issue with the project will be metaphysical. It is possible, although not suspected to be likely, 
that the revival of the Sea Gigantis will result in a global Eve Cascade event that will awaken and or rejuvenate various other large-scale aggressors. This is only weakly supported by current models, as the sympathetic bonds between C. gigantis and other organisms are not believed to be strong enough to have any physical ramifications. Emergency notice from the Overseer Council. In light of recent cataclysmic events, the following files clearance has been lowered from level 5 to level 1. It is our belief that the information contained in this file provides essential context to an anomaly that has affected normalcy on a worldwide scale. For the safety of the organization and the survival of humanity, all Foundation personnel are required to review this document. The veil has been lifted. This is now a war on all fronts. Item number, SCP-5391, Level 1, Unrestricted. Containment Class, Esoteric. Secondary Class, Apollyon. Disruption Class, Amida. Risk Class, Danger. Special Containment Procedures. Complete containment of SCP-5391 is to be achieved through direct engagement of 5391-1. Dash 1 entities are to be subdued or terminated on a case-by-case -case basis at the discretion of engaging parties. A state of daytime has been declared between the Foundation and certain major paranormal organizations, specifically the Global Occult Coalition. All groups, in conjunction with world governments, are to focus efforts on the engagement and combat of the anomalous entities. Foundation Facility Site 40 has been declared neutral ground and is to be the primary research terminal of all related phenomena. As such, the remains of all Dash-1 entities are to be hosted at this location for further analysis. Several massive underground containment chambers are to be used in the event that a live Dash-1 specimen can be contained. The Foundation is presently in the early phases of an SK-class broken masquerade scenario. As such, all protocol relating to the preservation of the veil is to be disregarded. Refer to site supervisors and disseminated supplemental documentation for further information. See Addendum 5391.4 for details on Dash 1 engagement protocols. Description SCP 5391 is the designation given to the subsequent appearance of several hostile large scale aggressors, LSAs, following the revival of LSA 1. These entities, collectively referred to as both SCP 5391 1, and their individual designations are gigafauna, varying in appearance, height, and biological composition. While certain entities possess physical traits similar to those found in ordinary organisms, each entity deviates in significant characteristics and anomalous capability. The unifying characteristic among entities is the possession of destructive thaumatological capabilities, including the large-scale emission of elon vital energy and Akiva radiation. A brief summary detailing the characteristics and anomalous capabilities of significant entities can be found in Addendum 5391.1. There are presently 27 known entities that have appeared as a result of the anomaly. On 30 June 1998, a series of seismic events, including tsunamis, underwater and above-ground volcanic activity, and ground tremors, resulted in the surfacing of LSA-2 through LSA-9. Entities close to large population centers immediately engaged in hostile behavior. Foundation, military, and global occult coalition forces were mobilized, 
but were only successful in driving the entities away from large civilian populations. In most cases, entities retreated into the ocean. A combination cleanup and reconstruction effort of these population centers is underway and is expected to take full effect upon the complete containment or neutralization of the threat. The appearance of the entities has resulted in both an MH-class large-scale aggressor overrun scenario and an SK-class broken masquerade scenario, as destruction of metropolitan and otherwise populated areas upon the awakening of these entities has damaged the veil beyond repair. The vector of anomalous activity is hypothesized to be the resurrection of LSA-1, an entity responsible for the attack on High Brazil, a large anomalous community, in 1988. This entity was neutralized by the Global Occult Coalition through the use of an experimental, unique Cassaba Howitzer nuclear-directed energy weapon, which had the subsequent effect of destroying much of the surrounding area of High Brazil. Following this, the corpse of the entity fell into the possession of GOI-211, Prometheus Labs, who engaged in a series of experiments and physical modifications intended to revive the entity. On 28 June 1998, the entity was successfully revived, destroying the research facility off the coast of Swansea, Wales, before escaping. It is unknown why the revival of LSA-1 has resulted in SCP-5391. Addendum 5391.1 Significant Entities LSA-1 Appearance, 28 June 1998 Location, Swansea, Wales LSA-1 is a crocodilian and cephalopodic entity responsible for the destruction of High Brazil in 1988. The entity possesses numerous thaumatological capabilities, including regenerative properties, the emission of Ellen Vital energy for defensive purposes, and the ability to detect other LSAs through EVE patterns. While the entity was once considered neutralized and had sustained unlivable damage to its body, LSA-1 was revived by Prometheus Labs for the purposes of an experimental program codenamed Anastasis. As a result, LSA-1 is currently outfitted with large amounts of paratechnical components that accentuate its abilities. Anastasis ran from 12 March 1991 to 28 June 1998 culminating in the successful reanimation of LSA-1 and the subsequent destruction of the Prometheus Labs testing facility. LSA-1 is currently at large and was last observed near the island of Principe. LSA-2 Appearance, 30 June 1998 Location, Wake Island, United States Minor Outlaying Islands LSA-2 is an aquatic serpentine entity that resembles a wolf eel, Anorictus oscillatus, its full body length and measurements are currently unable to be determined due to limited observation. An elysium hangs from the entity's head, hypothesized to act as a lure for prey. When LSA-2 opens its mouth, a second head, resembling that of an anglerfish, will emerge from the entity's mouth to consume prey. This appendage is capable of moving independently from the body, extending as far as 40 meters. LSA-2 is also capable of changing its skin coloration. A variety of complex color mixtures and patterns have been observed. Upon awakening, the entity briefly attacked a cruise ship near Mahuro before being driven back to sea by Global Occult Coalition forces. LSA-8 Appearance, 30 June 1998 Location, Stromboli, Italy LSA-8 is an armored, ankylosaurian quadruped that appeared in Stromboli, Italy. The entity was apparently buried beneath the island's sediment and its awakening resulted in the eruption of Mount Stromboli 
and complete destruction of the island. LSA-8's plating features numerous broad spines that end in a narrow point, presumably a self-defense mechanism. The seams between these plates have a scintillating red glow, similar to that of molten rock. As shown during the eruption of Mount Stromboli, the entity shows great resistance to heat and is capable of expelling even-fused magma from its body. Due to the danger of approaching LSA-8, the entity has remained undisturbed on the island, spending a significant portion of its time following its appearance in a state of rest. LSA-14 Appearance 1 July 1998 Location Amman, Jordan LSA-14 is an arboreal entity resembling a massive, leafless tree. The entity's lower body is composed of soft appendages akin to roots, which LSA-14 is used to anchor itself in the ground. While the entity is capable of moving through traditional means, it prefers to remain stationary and protect itself through the extension of its appendages. LSA-14 is capable of rapidly regrowing and generating extensions of its body at will, observed to be used to pierce its prey. Its upper half resembles a tree trunk, but with a clear head appendage with several black eyes visible. Prior to surfacing, the top portion of LSA-14 was visible above ground among Davite ruins located in Jordan. The entity was initially thought to be an anomalously grown tree. Following its revival, the entity attacked the city of Amman, causing over 100,000 documented casualties. The entity was driven into the countryside, where Foundation and Global Occult Coalition forces are currently attempting to neutralize the threat. LSA-18 Appearance 2 July 1998 Location Elizabeth, New Jersey LSA-18 is a winged coleopteratic entity resembling a goliath beetle, Goliathus goliatus. Four pairs of wings with estimated individual lengths of approximately 65 meters grow between the entity's plated body. A large, tapered horn is situated on the entity's head. LSA-18 appeared in Elizabeth, New Jersey, surfacing from a field outside the city. The entity's subsequent destruction of Elizabeth resulted in over 32,000 casualties. LSA-18 is presently in a state of flight and has not touched land since its initial surfacing. Addendum 5391.2 Site 01 Internal Memo 1 July 1998 Hyperion 5 Emergency Summit Internal Memo Site 01 Prepared by Factorum 03A on 1 July 1998, an emergency summit between high-ranking Foundation personnel was held at Site-01. The purpose of this conference was to determine a proper course of action following the events of SCP-5391. Among those in attendance included Public Relations Specialist Agent Diogenes, RISA Administrator Maria Jones, and Dr. Charles Gears. In a 9-0 vote, the conference decided to move in favor of lifting certain veiled operations organizing contact with the Global Occult Coalition, and directing all efforts and resources to containing the anomalous threat by any means necessary. Furthermore, Dr. Mikasa Kaori, an integral component during the cleanup and documentation of the High Brazil event, was promoted to research head for anomalous-related phenomena. Dr. Kaori's experience with containing and researching several LSA-class anomalies was also taken into account. Upon review by the Overseer Council, the actions proposed by the Hyperion 5 Summit were put to an Overseer vote and agreed upon. Vote 4, 9. Agent Diogenes, Researcher Ridley, Director Jones, Dr. Gears, Director Marzipane, Director Luong, 
Dr. Ziank, Dr. Mudari, Agent Rangham. Vote against zero. Addendum 5391.3. Interview. On 4 July 1998, Foundation agents successfully detained and captured person of interest 2889, Stanislav Nikolaev, at the Dublin airport. The person of interest is a former GRUP scientist and director of Prometheus Lab's Anastasis Project. The individual was present during the destruction of the Prometheus Lab's testing facility and claimed the results of the Anastasis Project were successful. While in custody, he was noted to express joy and elation in regards to the events of the anomaly, claiming that his life's work had been seen to completion. The individual was brought to Site 40 and promptly interrogated. Begin log. Dr. Kaori walks into the room and sits down. There is an extended silence. Yes, Doctor. You've expressed several statements regarding the anomaly. Was this an intended consequence of reviving LSA-1? <laughs> Yet. No, Doctor. I assure you, none of us on the research team had knowledge. Trust me, Doctor. You may not have stopped my involvement, but suits shut the project down like that. And why is that? Is this the future you want? Are you enjoying the destruction of the Veil? The oncoming loss of millions of lives? Your actions cost us everything. Cost the world everything. My simple goal was to make a monster, Doctor. I made a monster. And received a dozen more. It is a glorious, unforeseen turn of events. I sense resentment from you, Doctor. This isn't calm and collected demeanor foundation researcher is supposed to uphold. <laughs> Dr. Kaori sinks into her seat and sighs. This isn't the world we were supposed to uphold, either. This world is being returned to rightful masters. I've studied the LSAs for decades. These beasts are unstoppable in purest sense of word. Fighting them is hopeless. You're better to curl up into ball and accept fate. At least for now. For now? Yes. For now, if you cannot adapt to New Earth Paradigm, then you will die. Your whole species will die. Thousands of years of human achievement. The person of interest extends his hand and blows before laughing. How do we adapt? The only way to kill Kaiju is with one of their own, hmm? Are you suggesting we train an LSA? It would be near impossible to train one. But if you want to kill Kaiju, you'll need one of your own. Raise one. Grow one. Make one. Perhaps even build one. Site-40's warning clacks in sound. Dr. Kaori looks frantically. The person of interest begins laughing. The door to the interview room is flung open by another member of site personnel. Dr. Kaori, there's an LSA threat 12 kilometers from the facility, engaged with civilian watercraft. All forces are mobilizing. Understood. Dr. Kaori gets up and begins to rush out of the room. She stops as the person of interest begins to speak. <laughs> You'll see. You'll see what I mean, Doctor. You cannot win against this power. Dr. Kaori leaves, glaring. End log. Addendum 5391.4. Incident Wake 02B. Incident Log. Date 4 July 1998. Preface. Following the resurfacing of LSA-2, the entity attacked a fishing vessel before being engaged by the Foundation. Mobile Task Force H-5 Jaeger bombers 
and Site-40 trained personnel were ordered to subdue or neutralize the entity using a variety of specialized equipment. A log of Incident Wake 02B follows. Begin log. Midnight. LSA-2 resurfaces in the Pacific Ocean, 1,523 miles west of Site-40. Midnight 24. LSA-2 approaches a Trident Seafoods fishing vessel and begins assaulting the craft. Midnight 37. Foundation forces arrive. Six Blackgate Atmos armed helicopters. Two Alpha-class watercraft, Cronus and Rhea, respectively, armed with various anomalous weaponry and the high-energy concentration orbital railgun, HECOR. Midnight 45. MTF-H5 Jaeger bombers are deployed from Dimensional Site-172 materialized successfully. Midnight 48. Bombardment of the entity continues to be ineffectual. An MM-13 binding field is deployed in an attempt to contain LSA-2 in a state of stasis. The device is rendered unusable within seconds by a large emission of EVE. Midnight 54. The entity damages the fishing vessel beyond its ability to float. There are two immediate civilian casualties. Midnight 55. Dr. Kaori and the control team redirect efforts to the safe evacuation of civilians aboard the vessel. A helicopter begins to board survivors. The bodies of the two casualties are unable to be recovered. 0103. LSA-2 grossly extends its second mouth and devours the retreating helicopter. 18 casualties result. 0108. The entity is pierced by four antithaumatologic cannons. Considerable damage is dealt before LSA-2 destroys a cannon by bludgeoning it with half of the fishing vessel. 0115. HECOR prepares for firing. Twelve thaumatologically keyed explosives impact the entity with minimal effect. 0119. LSA-2 consumes two more helicopters after destroying another cannon. There are 31 casualties. 0124. A sweeping wave of EVE results in the destruction of Foundation vessel Rhea. There are 36 casualties. 0131. HECOR fires, destroying a large portion of LSA-2. The entity immediately begins regenerating. 0134. Dr. Kaori redirects the objective to the safe evacuation of Foundation personnel. A Blackgate T-12 unmanned drone is deployed to distract the entity while a second Atmos helicopter is directed to transport survivors to Site-40. 0156. Bombardment of LSA-2 ceases as personnel board the rescue vehicle. The entity consumes the drone as the helicopter retreats from the area. 0232. 18 surviving personnel are successfully evacuated to Site-40. All members of MTF-H5 return to Dimensional Site-172 with only minor injuries. Total casualties are calculated at approximately 87. End log. Closing statement. Unacceptable. This log in the recorded footage of the incident is proof enough that we do not possess the tools required to effectively combat these entities. We lost 74 Foundation personnel, 13 civilians, and barely scratched the threat. We would have lost more if I hadn't ordered the evacuation. It's evident now, more than ever, that our methods of containment regarding LSAs are grossly ineffective and costly. I've been lobbying for the continued development of the key program for years. I'm presently drafting a reinstatement proposal for the committee's review. If we want to protect this new world, it's imperative we adapt with it. Dr. Kukri. Addendum 5391.5 Notice from the Overseer Council. 
as SCP-5391 is an ongoing phenomenon. Information is limited and subject to change. This file has been compiled and released as a document intended to summarily inform personnel of all clearance levels. Further information regarding bail protocol, including LSA documentation, and changing policy will be disseminated through the necessary channels. SCP-5391 is considered a living document and will be updated accordingly. It is imperative that all Foundation personnel remain aware of further developments relating to this anomaly. In the event that your place of employment within the Foundation is the focus of an anomalous incident, necessary information and protocol has been released to facility administration committees. Secure. Contain. Protect. Downloading unread messages. From A. Simmons to M. K. Ori. Subject. SCP-5391 Date, 5 July, 1998 Dr. Kaori, I'm assuming you've read the public release of the file by now. Didn't leave much out. Two days ago, something happened in Paraguay. Killed an entire Foundation expedition team. There's ruins there. Labyrinthine cave systems filled with remnants of ancient civilizations you've never heard of. The higher-ups are starting to put the pieces together. Why is this happening? What these things are? What's about to come? We were keeping this clearance above you, but your research head now. It's your right to know. We're almost finished revising the file. Regards, Albert Simmons, Site 40 Research Director. From M.K. Ori to A. Simmons. Subject, SCP-5391. Date, 5 July, 1998. Director Simmons. Thank you, Director. I'm glad the Overseers saw me fit to see information that is integral to carrying out my job effectively. I spent a day arguing with the Financial Division trying to dredge up several old failed projects, specifically the Key Program, as well as the handful that were rushed into development after the High Brazil incident. RISA won't even provide the records. I hope you can realize that withholding information from the appointed authority on this phenomena is neither beneficial to your cause nor protective of anyone. When will I be given permission to read this new document? Regards, Dr. Mikasa Kiori, Foundation Research Specialist. From A. Simmons to M. Kiori. Subject, SCP-5391. Date, 5 July, 1998. Expect to see it on your desk by tomorrow morning. Remind me, what's the key program? From M. Kiori to A. Simmons. Subject, SCP-5391. Date, 5 July, 1998. What do people usually do when confronted with giant monsters? They build mechs. It is cold. I felt nothing in my shell as the still ambience echoed in the deep sea. Placed alongside several others of my kind, I'm but an immature being. Despite this, nothing threatens my existence. Baffling as it is, I was left alone. Together we sit, line by line, embryo by embryo. There were hundreds, if not millions, that lay amongst my shell. And yet, Mother never came back. Left in the deep sea, we grew and grew, 
with the absence of a parent figure. Why would she produce such a vast amount of embryos and leave us bare? In spite of this, I had grown enough to think my own thoughts, to become self-aware. But these thoughts also brought several ominous ones as well. Left with my siblings, I began to mull over the truancy of my mother. It had shaken me to my core, thinking that she left me to rot on my own. However, such thoughts eventually left me, washing away in the flow of consciousness. As I felt the water rush over me, I could feel vibrations amongst the shells. My brethren were shaking, as if to escape, to leave. I watched from my own shell, my prying eyes staring right into theirs. Where could they go in this dark environment? I saw, as many of their carpuses started to crack, wriggling around in their now broken shells, they slowly grew accustomed to the water. Like grains of sand, they began swimming toward the surface, toward the light, which was overshadowed by a tiny figure. Something was happening, and I didn't know what. Eventually, I heard the sounds from the surface, loud and abrupt. My siblings had been swimming towards their demise. Why must I watch as they approached their demise? Why must I watch while they took the initiative? Why had I been left alone? I shook violently. My stomach started churning, saliva dripping from my throat. At that moment, my brother emerged from my maw, and we both looked, looked up with two pairs of eyes, as a loud roar emanated from the heavens while we thought, Oh, she's calling. It's time to wake up. As it turns out, being dredged back from the grave and thrown out into the world of the living has left you with a completely empty stomach. It certainly doesn't help that the last time you went out for a bite to eat was exactly when you died, and they got you before you managed to chow down. Your stomach is completely empty. What you need is one good, solid meal. You can smell a couple of choices. They're all pretty far away, however. And a few of them have that weird scent to them that you picked up on your last attempted meal, which rather obviously didn't go so well. You couldn't even find anything to eat when you showed up that time, and everybody just started attacking you. You don't want to be picky since you're absolutely starving, but you also can't afford to mess up this meal. You need to get a good meal in for certain, no bones about it. Well, you'll eat the bones too if you get the chance. You find those are one of the most filling parts of the meal, as it turns out. There's a good target close to you, big enough to feed you for a good stretch, but not so big you're worried it'll be a tough fight. You don't go down easy. You're the queen, as it stands. But in this weakened state, it might be a close one. Your chosen prey is a bit of a hike away, almost three days away, but you can get there fine. You pull yourself off the ground and turn your head to the ocean. Your eyes have changed in the time since you woke up. They've got new modes of seeing to them. You're not really sure how they work or what anything they did to you does. There's all sorts of metal in your head, in your body, and a buzzing that tries to boss you around. You thought short and hard about that and decided to not listen. It stopped right after that. If you focused on it, 
you could probably force a rejection of all the metal and heal the wound, but you're not sure if you have enough energy for it. In the meantime, you think it's letting you stand up, so you might as well let it stand. One of your hands stretches out and a claw breaks and grinds into the ground. You're in the middle of a set of buildings, and although you melted the roof off as the first thing you did when you woke up, there's still a lot of rubble around you. Rubble and fire. It hasn't been that long. Another hand reaches out and does the same. Then another, and another, and another. Then you repeat with all. You pull yourself into the sea. In the past, you would have been strong enough to stand on your back tentacles and pull yourself in that way. But you've never felt worse in your entire life. Well, you can go beyond that, since being dead was better than this. It's a struggle to bring yourself into the water. Insects freak out at your movements, but you don't listen to them. You never have. But once you get into the water, you immediately feel better. This is your home. This is where you belong. You slip in and start swimming. Moving your tentacles again, feeling the cold rush over your scales. It's refreshing, and you're like your old self again. Almost. A meal will help with that last 80% you're missing. You've been swimming for the last two days, a half limp of a swim. The distance between you and your prey was great, but even putting that aside, you're in no shape to move as fast as you used to. All this metal and foreign magic in your system is throwing you off, and although you're a bit more familiar with most of it now, it resisted you at first, but you bent it over your will and snapped it in half. But here you are. You found your prey. It's right below you. A hundred leagues beneath the sea. It has no inkling that you're here. You dive straight down. The creature you've chosen as a meal is a great beast with a hardback shell. An island of sorts grows on the back, drowned and revived whenever it dips beneath the sea. The kind of beast that's lived for thousands of years by tricking lost souls into thinking it's an island and drowning them in its wake. This all unfolds to you in your mind's five eyes. It's a subject in your kingdom, and the entirety of its existence is your domain. Its time has come. You crash into the back of the shell and grab onto the edge. It writhes underneath you, and you simply crawl forward and bite the neck of the beast. The cold ocean around you grows hot with the warmth of red blood. The beast writhes and squirms away from you, but your jaws are latched on and clamped shut. The creature is strong, but you are stronger. It is quick, but you are quicker. It's great, but you are greater. Its scales are tough, but your teeth are tougher. The creature has lived for a long time, but you have just now outlived it. It's a beautiful meal, and it takes you hours to consume it all, and you mean all of it. Nothing remains, not even a scrap of bone. The meal burns and transforms in your stomach, catalyzing into raw power within your gullet. Energy flows throughout you, and you feel better than you ever have. It might just be the fact that you lay dead for ten years, or the fact that you were starving even before you died, but this might have just been the best meal you've ever had. You surge up to the surface. It doesn't take much effort. You're a lot stronger than you used to be. Everything is so much easier now. Everything is so much clearer, too. The influx of power has warped and twisted the metal that was forced into you and brought it into alignment with your spirit. 
It is as much a part of you as your flesh now, and it no longer feels foreign. You look back out again with your other senses, the ones that go above. You did this to find prey, but you weren't looking for anything beyond a meal, and that distracted you from what you might have found. And who could blame you? You were just so goddamn hungry. But when you look out this time, you see so much more. A kingdom, swarming beasts, dozens of them, all great and powerful and mighty across the entire world. You've always known your place, granted to you by divine right, but you've never had enough subjects to claim it. But now, there's a world, a world of monsters, ripe for the taking, all for you. Name, Cappy. Species, Capsule Pet. Presented by Dr. Wondertainment. Primary caretaker, Quincy Ridge. Sometimes accompanied by Harper Ridge. Diet, water, and as a rare treat, flies. Housed, Habitat 1. Creature features. Cappy is the name for a giant two-meter-tall capsule pet who's actually a lizard. As you can probably tell, she was made by Dr. Wondertainment who for some reason cares way too much about intellectual property. I can't even take a picture of her for God's sakes. An error comes up on my camera that taking pictures of unsold company property in its active state is not allowed. So I suppose that her egg was stolen. We're not sure. Anyways, Cappy is, yes, massive, likely because of all the water she absorbs into her soft, spongy skin. She's fairly low maintenance for being the largest animal that we have though we do like to treat her with sponge baths and insects from time to time. History Months ago, seven-year-old Harper Ridge discovered Cappy's egg when he was playing in the woods with his friends. I'll just transcribe what he told us. Me and Pete were playing in the forest behind Pete's house and I was looking for a good walking stick when I found Cappy. She was still in her egg, but I could feel her in there, so I took her home. Dad thought it was a rock. He didn't even believe me. Well, I knew Cappy was alive, so I held her and warmed her up and washed off her dirty shell in the tub, but then she started to crack. When she came out of her shell, she was just a little baby lizard, but she started growing fast. The bathtub was almost empty, even though I had the faucet going. It was pretty crazy, but she was really nice. She even crawled up into my arms once I turned the bath off. After a while of me playing with her, my dad walked in and he looked pretty surprised. He said that while we could keep her, she was getting too big for the bathtub. So now she's living at Wilson's. Sometimes my dad even takes me there to play with her. Special Needs and Accommodations We really didn't have any idea where to keep Cappy at first, mostly because, well, she kept on getting bigger. Thankfully, she isn't growing anymore, so we're able to keep her in a nice fenced-off area with its own pond in it, which she shares with some of our ducks, geese, and other waterfowl. We were originally a bit too nervous about her accidentally crushing the birds, but she's actually very gentle with them, making sure to move slowly whenever they get close. Cappy even lets him sit on her sometimes. It's very cute to see her snoozing with a bunch of swans on her head. Notes about Cappy As said before, Cappy's a surprisingly simple animal for being so big. We did have a small concern when Cappy kept on trying to catch any planes that went overhead, but her tongue is short enough that it isn't a problem. Usually she just hits the net anyways. Cappy Incident 
30 June 1998, entered by Quincy Ridge. I'm not even sure where to start. There was an earthquake earlier, not sure what magnitude, but it seemed more intense than they usually are, so I left to go check on some animals to make sure they didn't get stressed and act out. When I came to check on Cappy, she was looking at the sky. It's only until the sun was blocked out that I realized what she was staring at. A fly. A fly as big as her. I suppose Cappy saw it like any normal insect, because she flicked her tongue up, wrapping up the insect, and tried to pull it back into her mouth. But it was too big to fit through the net. I wish it had just given way. Instead, the net started cutting in, dividing it into little tiny pieces, most of which fell into Cappy's mouth one of which fell onto me. Fly blood is disgusting, by the way. Anyways, I hosed myself off and ran back into the shelter to try and contact the supervisors, but they didn't pick up. Then Tim turned on the news, and others got it much worse. Item number 5437, level 5, top secret. Containment class, safe. Disruption class, VLAM. Risk class, caution. Special containment procedures. The area surrounding provisional site 5437 has been cordoned off under the auspices of an archaeological site owned by Foundation Front Company, Bartak Expeditions. Standard security and trespassing protocol is enforced. The carcass of SCP-5437-1 has been transferred to Foundation Facility Site-40 for research purposes. Description SCP-5437 is a prehistorical religious complex located approximately 30 kilometers west of Paraguari, Paraguay. The exterior of the anomaly combines known elements of primitive fittest and pre-classical Mesoamerican architecture. It is hypothesized that the anomaly was constructed sometime between 4100 and 3100 BC and saw usage until the start of the 3rd millennium BC. Research has shown that the anomaly's sole anomalous property is its ability to preserve biological matter for abnormal amounts of time, causing it to decay at an excessively low rate. The approximate size of the anomaly is unknown. The majority of the structure is located underground, and several hidden chambers and hallways have been uncovered behind the complex walls. Aside from these branching rooms, the anomaly is mainly composed of a spiraled staircase that leads to a spacious foyer approximately 86 meters beneath the surface. Colored parietal art lines the foyer walls, arranged in sequential order to display a religious narrative. An analysis of these petrographs can be found in Addendum 5437.1. An unknown syllabic and logographic writing system is engraved underneath the artwork. They remain untranslated, leaving analysis of the painting's contents largely to speculation. The hypothesized purpose of this cathedral area is to serve as a place of worship for SCP-5437-1. Dash 1 is the carcass of a massive aphyroidic entity cataloged as a large-scale aggressor. The entity is green in coloration and has five thin arms that sprout from its center, each measuring approximately 20 meters in length. Dash 1 largely resembles an ophiroid but possesses hundreds of eyes on its central body disc. 
dating techniques have failed to provide any discernible information regarding Dash 1's age. Dash 1's skin is incapable of being penetrated, even by anomalous means. As such, all attempts to dissect or examine the biological structures of Dash 1 have failed. No secondary anomalous effects have been observed. Access Addendum 5437.1 Petrograph Analysis Petrograph 1 Description An entity resembling LSA-1 is engaged in combat with an out-of-frame tentacled entity, of which only four tentacles are painted. Beneath this scene, a tentacle is drawn emerging from the sky as several entities hypothesized to be LSAs are falling to the ground. Petrograph 2 Description Several scenes show the entities that fell from the sky being worshipped by prehistorical civilizations. An eel-like entity hovers over a sacrificial altar built in the ocean. An ankylosaurid stands on top of a volcano as human figures surround it. A large group of men construct what is assumed to be SCP-5437 around Dash 1. Five men are seen standing near Dash 1's arms, which touch the tips of their heads. Petrograph 3 Description Each entity is depicted in a state of rest. Below this, the human figures that constructed the anomaly are shown to be dead, turned onto their backs. The eyes of Dash 1 are closed. A visage of LSA-1 covers the remainder of the mural. Petrograph 4 Description A logographic calendar system spans the wall, written in a circular fashion. While the system used is indiscernible, several key symbols related to farming, the sun, and numerology indicate that the mural represents a calendar. At the center of the painting is LSA-1, standing over a human settlement. At the bottom of the calendar, LSA-1 is depicted as deceased. Several figures gather around the carcass of the entity, each holding an item associated with occult rituals, such as a human skull, a ceremonial knife, and a cup of blood. Petrograph 5 Description Scenes of man-made structures burning and being destroyed by LSAs frame the mural. In the center, LSA-1 larger than before, is now shown engaging in combat with the LSA entities that were depicted as resting. A thunderstorm is painted above the battle. Beneath this, LSA-1 is shown tearing a serpentine entity apart with its tentacles and throwing its body into the sun. Several entities who are not pictured as deceased stand around LSA-1. In the final sequence, LSA-1 sits atop a large settlement as human figures venerate themselves before the entity. Access Addendum 5437.2 Interview Log Date 17 April 1998 Forward After fifthest motifs were observed during the exploration of the anomaly and analysis of its artwork, site director Dr. Tobias Othello consulted with retired Foundation historian researcher Emil Metcalf. Metcalf specialized in the study of fifthism for nearly three decades following the belief system's discovery in 1969. Metcalf was put on paid leave following an incident in 1991 
wherein he exhibited signs of being neurologically affected by fifthism. In the years that followed, Metcalf has been given significant psychological therapy and treatment, being declared fit to work in 1997. Begin log. Dr. Othello enters the room. Metcalf stands to shake his hand, but quickly retracts himself and sits back down. It's been a while, sir. I've already been briefed. I know where this is going. Toby, I told you I don't want anything to do with this garbage. Not anymore. It wasn't my call. They wanted an expert on fifthism. You're the closest thing. And what makes you so sure this is fifthist? I've seen the pictures. Five murals, the corpse of a brittle star. It's surface level. It's superficial. It's not fifthist. That's why you're being called in. We want to bring you aboard, help us analyze the anomaly and figure out what it really is. You have to admit, you can make aesthetic connections. And that's exactly why I don't believe this is a fifthist creation. I'll come along, but your superiors won't get what they're expecting. Some grand fifthist revelation about the anomaly's ancient origins. Something so counterintuitive to the very idea of fifthism, it's laughable. I have to wonder if my work on the subject has ever been read. If it's the mere sight of a starfish that's calling me in. Well, sir, I've read a bit back in Brussels. That was years ago, but it stuck with me. What about High Brazil? You've seen the paintings. That's the crocus squid. Five tentacles, five eyes, come on. I was there. That's why I'm really here, aren't I? You were there? In 1988? Before you ask, my... My incidents happened later. I'm alright. Sorry to hear that, sir. I didn't have any idea. Do you think it's a tragedy? Hi, Brazil? Come again? Do you think it's better they had died together with others? I'm not sure what you mean, sir. You wouldn't, Toby. I guess I'm here for a reason. Maybe you'll come to a conclusion in the coming months. You have my assistance. Whatever you need me to do, I can help with. When I saw it, yes, there's something here, perhaps. Thank you, sir. How does research head sound? There's about 25 of us here, give or take. Not a lot to manage. It'd take a workload off of me. I mean, we can even set your office up in the foyer if you'd like. Whatever accommodation allows me to carry out tasks in the most efficient way is fine. End log. Access addendum. 5437.3. Collected journal entries of researcher Metcalf. April 19th, 1998. Dornell helped me move the majority of my possessions to the cathedral area. I have a bed, a desk, my archives, and all the proper equipment I'd need. I'm still not entirely sure what my purpose here is. I've toured through half of the structure, taking photographs, notes, and placing markers. Find a fifthest angle, I was told. Find or create. I remind myself of the inexplicable ties the structure has to the souls who perished ten years prior. As heaven poured out below, I could not see its eyes or its arms. Despite my life's work, my thoughts weren't on the virus of the mind, or the way it transmutes, or a world above our own. 
I was faced with the terror of the Aztec, bearing witness to the technology of European conquerors, of the man who entrenches himself in the world of the anomalous for the first time, of the Neanderthal, seeing beasts larger than he can hunt. I did not think in terms of anomalies and normalities. I did not think at all. I know it's true that there's work to be done. April 21st, 1998. Eventful day in the catacombs. Eventful night. I've walked all that we've cataloged, even the curious hidden passages and chambers. Most of my time is spent cataloging, dating, and observing artifacts we unearth. It's quite comforting work given my former fields. Maite, a clearly green, kind girl, assists me by bringing objects to my office, which I do not leave for hours at a time. Its situation in between the arches of a long hallway makes me feel as if I've lived here my whole life. I'm surprised the request to move it here was even approved. It's possible, given my tendency to absorb myself fully in my task, that previous experience was taken into account. There is little difference between this site and a regular archaeological dig. Like a jungle film serial or comic, I feel as if I'm living out the fantasies of my youth. Instead of the brave safari leader, I've taken the role of the aged professor. I've even started dressing the part. April 22nd, 1998. The case of the murals remain. I've put off my duties for the day as a research head can to study them. The story they tell is evident. A legion of beasts cast from heaven descend to earth to be worshipped as gods. For whatever reason, they collectively hibernate. Do they become victims of time, or are they awaiting judgments? Upon the arrival of a greater beast, they awaken. A war is waged, and the lesser beasts venerate their new leader, as does humanity itself. I, of course, observe this through the eyes of a historian as I would any religious myth. However, there is a luxury seldom achieved by someone who entrenches themselves into the unknown. I looked at the corpse. I had been avoiding it until now. April 24th, 1998. Happy anniversary, Patricia. I still love you. April 27th, 1998. I feel as if I haven't seen another soul in weeks, despite talking to my colleagues daily. Maite has started bringing me food. She's a wonderful cook. There's something fascinating about the effects of this anomaly. Matter decays at a slower rate. Death is, for a time, prolonged. In retrospect, I'm surprised I was allowed to stay down here. I'm a willing subject, yes, but there's been a recent push for more ethical testing conditions within the Foundation. I think it's still happening. April 30th, 1998. How long did that carcass take to die? These entities almost certainly live longer than most life, and given the effects of the structure, I'm left only to speculate. Is it 
dead or simply in the last stages of its life, its final seconds protracted into centuries. May 3rd, 1998. Toby informed me he's taking leave soon. I'm not sure when. He said tonight, but who knows when tonight actually is. I can't remember his reasoning. Some sort of conference with his superiors. I'm acting site director now. Could you imagine? Director Metcalf? There's some that would outright join the coalition if they saw that. May 5th, 1998. I haven't slept in... a long time. I'm almost certain it's the lighting. I might move out for a few days. But I realize that would interfere with the minor experiment I have going on with my body. I'm starting to feel anger when I look at the carcass. Secretly, I wish it was alive. I hope it is. The death that being is capable of causing renders it a threat. I was proud to witness the coalition open a hole in the squid's head. Would we have done the same? A gaping hole in the starfish's head. It wants to die, but its own temple forbids it. May 7th, 1998. Kimberly would have been 13 today. May 10th, 1998. I yelled at Maite. I'm not sure what I said to the poor girl, but I'm too ashamed to think about it. The story on the paintings is solidifying itself more and more in my mind. In 1978, the Russians found a beast in the Arctic. They found its carcass frozen in a tomb. We know nothing about the society that built it. Their sole monument is one of death, a mausoleum for a beast. Did those ancient builders know their work would be forgotten? Why did they construct such beautiful creatures if they would soon die? The summation of their achievements is death. I lay in the tomb of the undying. May 13th, 1998. Patricia asks me what I want for dinner. I tell her I don't want anything out of the ordinary. She laughs and asks if I know where I am. Kimberly enters, eating a luminescent purple ice cream. She hugs me and thanks me for letting her come. I booked us tickets for a dancing show tonight, held in a large arena. I feel the stubs in my pocket. It's a secret. None of them know I purchased them. Another birthday gift to add to Kimmy's infinite pile. I feel the warm, tuathan silk of my couch as I lay my head down for a brief rest. The island is paradise. And then they died. May 15th, 1998. Ordinary day. Found a new passage. May 19th, 1998. I got up in the middle of the day last night. Started walking the halls. I went into the hidden chamber and all I saw were corpses. The men who built this temple. The men who didn't. 
They stretched on for miles. Did they know they would die? Did they paint their murals with a sense of joy? The death, the destruction, the inevitable? Or did they believe they would be spared? May 20... 28th, 1998. It's good they died together. It's good they died when they did. They would have died if they hadn't, because I would have told them to. Thursday. I used to dream. I haven't in months. Every stone in this temple was set by a man whose name is forever lost. I watched myself today. I'm a foundation man. I'm intelligent enough to know when things are awry. They, they aren't, even if they seem that way. My body does my job efficiently and effectively. I maintain composure as I always have. Brief flashes of anger when Maite drops a statue shattering it into a hundred pieces. Its thousand-year death has finally come to a close. The tomb gains another resident today. I tell her it should have been her. Night. A fifthest concept is hardly fifthest at first glance, but slowly transcends reality. A quote from my first lecture, actually. It's either that or paraphrased a bit. This is not a fifthest concept. I'm fully aware of what's happening here. And I know it's the corpse. It has no secondary anomalous effects. I stepped outside today. Just for a bit, because I know my mind is torn between walking away and facing the inevitable. It was nighttime, and the sun looks exactly as it did that night in High Brazil when Kimberly and Patricia were trapped under a wall, and I saw the blood pooling, but could not save them, nor would I want to. I got put on psychiatric watch because I got too close to a tape I shouldn't have listened to and started repeating its ideas. I started writing in this journal because I got too close to a beast I shouldn't have and started parroting its philosophy. If I was to die here, I would die an agonizing slow death. If the people of High Brazil were to die here... They would die extremely fast, much like the deaths of my dearly, dearly beloveds on that night. That happened. They found a beast in the Arctic. There are large-scale aggressors. There are monsters. I can make myself leave my bed and see one myself. It's in the foyer. The one on the walls. I'm in the temple, on the walls. The squid is on the walls. What's the point of denying it? These things happened. They're all going to happen. What happened to its corpse? 
When the beast died, it did not die, but moved to the next phase of its life, which is resurrection of the body. Anastasis, these things will come to pass. Why deny them? I prolong my death because we will all meet the same fate eventually. Toby left because he knew this. I can keep it together, but I'm not doing this anymore. June 17th, 1998. Coffee this morning was too hot. Documented several new artifacts. A chamber pot, some sort of religious statue, and a ceremonial dagger. There's evidence pointing towards a mass grave of human remains. If they killed them in the structure, they must have suffered an incredibly long time. They might have existed for hundreds of years in a dying state before finally expiring. Possibly more due to the effects this structure has on human matter, on decaying matter in the structure. I don't want to die. I'm scared to die. I do not wish to partake in the coming destruction. Like a fool, like a crazed lunatic, like someone affected by something out of their control, I touched the carcass. I would like to state to the council, to my superiors, to whoever will eventually compile this into a document. I am in full control of my actions, my body's actions and my thoughts and the memories of my loved ones. There is a sort of judgment coming. I do not wish to see it, and I know that I have a way out. The best thing about that way out is it's nothing new. It's always been there, in the back of my head, like a tiny hole that's been getting bigger and bigger. I know where it goes because I've been there before. The civilization that built this temple does not exist. They did not exist. Their names do not exist because they never had names in the first place. Where did they go? Why did they leave us? Did they fear it like I do? This is flavor. I am incredibly bored. I don't think anymore. Except when I'm on that island again. Or in that room. I don't mind any of this. It's calming compared to what's to come. Access Addendum 5437.4 Audio Transcript Okay, I'm... Ugh. I'm doing this to prove a point. Maybe to myself, um... <laughs> uh, probably to whoever is going to transcribe this and make... And make this into a document. I'm standing in front of the corpse, by the way. I'm sorry. The, uh, the, um, the object. Uh, I forget where I am sometimes. And I have to downplay what this thing actually is. I'm researcher Metcalf, by the way. My writing's a little flowery, so that's... That's why I'm doing it this way. Don't you get the wrong impression, and... Uh, you can hear that I'm fine. 
I got called here because I'm an expert in fifthism. There's some um connection between this anomaly and fifthism, or so they say. I don't know, honestly, and I don't really care. Because you see, when people think about fifthism, they have this idea in their head about what it is really and not what it um what it actually is. They see the number five or a starfish and they think you start talking nonsense, but that's not the case. It never really is. I haven't said or wrote any nonsense. Go check. I, I'm clearly distressed, but I'm making sense. I think that speaks volumes about the state I'm in. You see, the truth is, Kimberly, when Kim and when Patricia died that night, I was lying to myself. Would you believe how many people I've talked to today? The number of people I've talked to today. <laughs> I won't even say it. It's unbelievable how much things start to make sense when you want them to. I'm looking at the corpse right now. This giant aquatic creature. It's dead, or at least has been for a long time. What do you want from me? To say that it's talking to me and telling me things? That it's alive? That I'm prophetic? That's bullshit. It all is. The reality of... The reality of the situation is that it's dead. Every soul in this temple is dead. There is no beyond. There is no fifth world for you to transcend to. There's nothing. I'm in a sarcophagus. And the death is... It's palpable. It's on the walls, especially. Damn it. I write like an old man. Because I am one. That's why I'm doing it this way, through this medium. So, in a house of the dead that still uh, prolongs death, do you know what really scares me? The idea of something coming back. That's why I'm scared of that beast. Because I saw the GOC blow it to pieces. I saw its guts splattered across the land. And well... And what used to be the land. I saw all of that. And it's still going to come back. Fifthism is. Uh, if I had to put it to words. It's the sight of your little girl being crushed by debris while you stand there unable to move. It's a beast that uses these arbitrary numbers and symbols to taunt you. It knows what it's doing by, by having that number of body parts. It's a tomb filled with dead built to prolong life. It's two forgotten societies doing the exact same thing halfway across the world from each other. It's the power to resurrect the dead. It's the power to awaken the sleeping. It's their blood mixing together and the coloration is clearly distinct in parts, but but you're still able to tell them apart. 
It's knowing that there's a reckoning and running from it with open arms. I fear. I fear for you all. I'm the coward here. I don't want to live in the world you're going to be. So call me weak. <laughs> there are so many different um, anomalies that I've seen. How many world enders have we seen before? There's a lot. It's a little different when you know it's real and when you know it's about to happen and there's nothing you can do and you know that because it already happened once. I'm staring it in the face. If I were you, I'd kill myself too. I think that's about it. Chalk it up to the right place and the right time. Access Addendum 5437.5 Incident 5437 At midnight 12 on 27 June 1998, SCP-5437-1 released a large emission of Elon Vital Energy, EVE, killing all personnel stationed at Provisional Site 5437 and destroying a significant portion of the anomaly. It is assumed this occurred shortly after researcher Metcalf created the preceding recording. Further investigation found Metcalf's intact, unharmed corpse within the body of Dash-1. This incident occurred within the same time frame of Prometheus Labs' revival of LSA-1 and subsequent awakening of several LSA-class entities across the world. This event is cataloged as SCP-5391. As decided by the Hyperion 5 Committee, Dash-1 has been transferred to Foundation Site-40 for research purposes. Precautions related to the petrographs depicted in the anomaly are being taken. Object class reclassification to neutralized is pending. Hey there, SCP fans. We're the podcast Simply Creative People, focused on the stories in the SCP universe and discussing creative processes. I'm Gregory Carpin, author of the wiki. Wow, the whole wiki. I'm Harry Blank, author of, I guess, the only hundred or so pages Gregory didn't write. Together, it's our sworn duty to endlessly flaunt the creative works of SCP writers and bask in their reflected glory, while Grigori tries to make good points, and I attempt to stop him. Right, all of that. But we're also interested in bridging the gap between all of the fans of the SCP fiction. Whether that means you enjoy YouTube videos or read the wiki regularly, we're the podcast for you. We frequently have guests on to talk about the projects or about things that they love. And right now, we're doing a deep dive into different groups of interest and recommending a few articles each episode. So join us for a semi-weekly discussion podcast where we mock each other and talk about the stories you love. You may just learn something. Find the show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or at our show page on anchor.fm slash simply dash creative dash people. Or follow the show on Twitter at S-I-M-C-R-E-A-T. The last thousand stairs finally came to a stop at the bottom of the book-bound ravine. Exhausted, Samuel sat down on the final stair for a moment, looking up into the black abyss of the library. But knowing that he didn't have time to rest, 
He gripped his lantern tighter and stood back up. I need to keep Site 40 updated, he thought. As he reached for the radio clipped to his waistband, an old, quiet voice suddenly spoke from the shadows ahead. Hello? Samuel raised his lantern and took a cautious step forward, revealing an old, bald man standing there, squinting through his round glasses. He wore a shabby, yellowed suit and slippers. The man must have noticed Samuel's confusing stare as he took a bow. Apologies if I don't look presentable. I don't get out much. Oh, uh, you're fine. I just didn't expect to see anyone down here. The man's eyes widened as Samuel wiped at the sweat on his brow and then pushed up his sleeves, revealing the serpent's hand tattoo on his forearm. Ah, uh, you must be one of those helpful little friends. Perhaps while you're here, you can help me with something. He sighed, adjusting his glasses. My eyes just aren't quite what they used to be, you see. I need help finding a book. Perhaps I can accompany you. I, I suppose you can. I'm headed to the history of the behemoths section. Behemoths? Um, don't give away mission info, Sam. Yes. Well, I'm looking for a book around there, too. The old man gave a toothy grin, turning on his heel. Let's not waste any time. Of course. Samuel replied with a sigh, following the man into the maze of never-ending bookshelves, unknowing of what lay ahead. The two men arrived at the end of the maze, a wide-open area vacant of any bookshelves. Samuel looked down to the floor covered in torn pages and scraps of wood, scratching his head. No ashes or burn marks, so it couldn't have been a fire. I've never seen a mess like this before. He glanced over at the old man, who looked equally as confounded. I take it you haven't either? Never. He gripped the top of his cane tightly. Unless... Unless... An expression of realization suddenly crossed onto the old man's face, which quickly turned to dread. Grab onto my hand. Samuel's brow furrowed, and he let out an awkward chuckle. What? The old man's face suddenly contorted in fury and he lurched forward, grabbing Samuel's hand before he could react. With his other hand, he gripped the center of his cane and twirled it before raising it into the air and stabbing it into his chest. Blood spurted from the wound, followed by a thick, greenish pus. Samuel could only look on in revulsion, unable to escape from the old man's iron grip. The library shook, and the floor beneath them collapsed, swallowing them into the void. When Samuel opened his eyes, he was standing in the same area he had just been, but the old man was gone. No blood or pus stained the floors. It was as if he had completely disappeared. Hello? He called out into the open area. Something boomed ahead, and Samuel began sprinting forward, lantern in hand. After a few minutes of running, he spotted bookshelves again, but something rose above them. A massive silverfish, about two stories tall, quickly devoured an entire bookshelf before raising its head. It looked straight at him and began to charge forward, its legs violently pounding on the floor. Samuel sprinted to the side and dived just as it narrowly swept past him. Swinging around, Samuel drew his pistol and shot at the beast, sinking bullets into its head and body. It appeared to falter for a moment, but then the bullet hole suddenly disappeared replaced with a pale green muscle, and it reared up once more. 
Samuel froze like a deer in headlights, trembling. But before it could charge again, something rammed into it, sending it crashing into the bookshelves. In a flash, the new predator had its jaws clamped onto the silverfish before tearing back, ripping out a chunk of its shiny flesh. Meanwhile, Samuel fumbled to his feet with his lantern, raising it to see a crimson reptilian tongue wrap itself around the twitching behemoth's thorax, its owner shrouded in thin shadow. The tongue tightened as the bug screeched, twitching and crashing itself into bookshelves. After a few moments it cut through, completely bisecting the creature, whose front half clawed at the tongue weakly before finally laying still. The tongue then ventured into the stomach of the creature, pulling out a mucus-covered brown book, which it flung into Samuel's arms. The old man's voice spoke. This is what you were looking for, isn't it? His hands shaking, Samuel looked down and read the title. Extinction of Behemoths. It, it is, Samuel stuttered out, looking up to see two emerald serpentine eyes peeking out from the creature shrouded in shadows. So they've come back? Samuel paused for a moment. Yes. Then I must go deal with them, it said, and the serpent charged into the darkness above, and all was quiet. Samuel threw the book to the floor, holding his head to his hands for a moment. The foundation had found evidence of behemoths roaming the lands far before our times, but they never found out how they had all disappeared. That was why Samuel had been sent to the library. They were hoping to find out how, in hopes that it could help them terminate the newly risen, large-scale aggressors. Samuel reached up with a shaking hand and turned on his radio. He knew what had happened without even having to read the book. The serpent had killed them all. Item number 5514. Level 1. Unrestricted. Containment class. Esoteric. Secondary class. Thaumiel. Disruption class. Dark. Risk class. Danger. Special containment procedures. SCP-5514 is currently being used as the primary means of defense against the ongoing MH-class large-scale aggressor overrun scenario. As such, limited containment protocols are in order. As a result of the ongoing SK-class broken masquerade scenario, there are no security protocols in place concerning SCP-5514. MTF-8-5 Jaeger Bombers has been trained to pilot SCP-5514 and is in charge of controlling and directing the vehicle. Liaisons from the Global Occult Coalition and the High Brazil Government have been assigned to assist in piloting SCP-5514. SCP-5391 Research Head Mikasa Kaori has been attached to Ada-5 in order to assist with tactical decisions in command. In the event that a large-scale aggressor attacks a city or other developed area, SCP-5514 is to be immediately deployed to said area in order to engage the entities. Lethal force is authorized against all of the entities which SCP-5514 will be fighting. Description SCP-5514 is a massive, humanoid, mecha-like vehicle 
constructed by the Foundation with assistance from the Global Occult Coalition. The mech is currently being utilized as part of defenses against the current ongoing MH-class large-scale aggressor overrun scenario. To this end, the mech is engaged in the combat and physical engagement of large-scale aggressors. The mech has managed to successfully kill or otherwise incapacitate 12 LSAs. Multiple anomalous phenomena were utilized in the construction of the mech. A full description of these anomalous phenomena has been attached to this document. See Addendum 5514.1 Construction Progress began on the construction of SCP-5514 in 1988, following the destruction of Site-03 by a previously unidentified LSA. Given the lack of defenses available to High Brazil and the known presence of other LSAs in the world, the Key Project was created as a preliminary working group to determine the best method for defending civilization against another LSA. The Key Project quickly determined several problems with all potential forms of defenses. Large-scale aggressors proved resistant to most forms of traditional attack, leading to the belief that they had some form of defensive ability that protected them from most forms of harms. However, other LSAs were able to penetrate these defenses. Taming or creating a biological simulacrum of an LSA was quickly ruled out. However, Analysis of SCP-2406 showed that it could possibly be used in order to replicate the offensive capabilities of LSAs. The Key Project then began planning and constructing a similar automaton, as it was the most viable means of defense. Construction of the mech began in 1990 and proceeded normally until 30 June 1998, when SCP-5391 occurred. At the time of the event, the mech was not fully finished and could not be used to avert the MH-class scenario. However, it remained the most viable means of defending the world from all LSAs, and the Foundation diverted all available funds into completing it. Furthermore, the Foundation contacted various groups of interest in order to make the mech a collaborative project. The majority of parties were unable to assist, as they were either unprepared for the MH-class scenario or significantly hampered by it. However, the Global Occult Coalition was both active and able to lend aid. Cooperation with the Global Occult Coalition was confirmed following an emergency summit hosted by the High Brazil government on 10 July 1998. Coalition, Foundation, High Brazil, Emergency Meeting Transcript. In attendance, High King Del Bayat II of High Brazil, Madam D.C. Alfine and General Rockefeller of the GOC, O5-1 and Captain Perseus Rosales of the SCP Foundation. I call this council meeting to action. I'm invoking Article 1, Section 2 of the pact that I bound you to six years ago. The end of the world is here and we will not be caught defenseless to these Krakens once again. The High Brazil International Security Agreement of 1992, you mean? Article 1, Section 2 binds us to action in the event that giant monsters of types different from the beast that destroyed your kingdom appear. Although it appears that the one that ended High Brazil is back. Speaking of that, are you sure that Yalen's safe or the best place to meet now? In the time since the doom that came to High Brazil, we have made arrangements for new guardians. 
They walk very slowly, but have a broad diet, one that includes the threats that have awoken as of late. I didn't notice anything that could have killed a Cetus-class entity. They move unseen. Ah, of course. And there is no chance of bringing these entities elsewhere. No, we do not control them, and we have no means of communicating with them. They have simply been led here over many years, and so we have them now. In any case, the pact is in order. Apologies, but I'm not familiar with the terms of this security agreement. I've not worked for the Coalition for some time, not since the incident at High Brazil. A shame we could have used you since then. You're a hard man to find. Not hard enough. The High Brazil International Security Agreement of 1992 stipulates that in event of an MH-class scenario, the Coalition, the Foundation, and High Brazil are to put aside all differences in order to stop the end of the world. Very well. So it must be. It's made easier that Article 2, Section 5 mandates that the preferred method of dealing with these entities is by killing them with extreme prejudice. Yes, you forced that stipulation through in negotiations six years ago. Enough. This is not the time or place to argue about past squabbles. We must act now. We currently have one plan. Nothing has worked against the LSAs in the past. But we have to resort to one of our more esoteric strategies. The key project. I'm all ears. A giant robot. We've been working on it for years, and it's currently eating the majority of our budget. Why the hell is that going to work? Well, the idea at the most basic level is to punch through all the metaphysical defenses that these entities possess by attacking them with another large-scale aggressor. We're also just throwing everything we can into the mix. You are using the otherworldly in the process, I hope. Certainly. We can contribute some help as best we can. If you cloak it in myth, steep it in the archetypes of those who have fought in the past, you will be able to do a great amount of harm. And we can offer you unforged cold iron in the form of a blade. Does cold iron actually do anything? It depends on how much you believe in it. Or how strong the story is. Well... I have to say I like your moxie, if nothing else. We'd be happy to help you on this one. I imagine that if we put our heads together, we can get this done in what, a few months? Years? We're temporally accelerating the construction chamber. Days, at most. I like the way you think, Aaron. With the support of the Global Occult Coalition and the full deployment of all anomalous methods to accelerate and ease the construction process, the mech was finished and declared ready for combat on 12 July, 1998. Addendum 5514.1 Anomalous Features and Weaponry of SCP-5514 One of the early design decisions made in the creation of the mech was whether or not to incorporate anomalous features into the design. It was ultimately ruled by the O5 Council 9-3-1 to to that a scenario requiring the deployment of the mech would necessarily be one in which the integrity of the masquerade protocol would be challenged. Therefore, the usage of anomalies in the operation of the mech would be permissible. Assistant Researcher Richardson's summary of some of the key anomalous features of the mech follows. Feature. Weight sink. Anomalous qualities. Large portions of the mech have had their material composition partially displaced into an adjacent 
pocket dimension. This displacement has been specifically calculated to not significantly lower the mass or density of the mech, while drastically lowering the material weight of it. This allows the mech to function as though it were a fraction of the weight without a sacrifice of hull integrity. Feature Power Source Anomalous Qualities SCP-37, a hyperminiature sun, has been implanted into the chest cavity of the mech. Subdimensional portal vents installed in the chest cavity release approximately 99% of the energy output of SCP-37 into an empty demiplane. The remaining 1% of output is used to reliably power the mech. Feature Flight Systems Anomalous Qualities A flaw produced during the development process of the mech has resulted in a control system initially installed to regulate internal air circulation, instead creating and controlling an independent gravity field. The origin of this flaw is unknown, and investigation could potentially cause it to stop functioning. The manipulation of this field allows for unaided flight. Feature Defenses Anomalous qualities Through the usage of conceptual engineering, the mech has been conceptually welded to the following. The planet Earth, human resilience, and adamant. As each of these concepts is dramatically larger and older than the mech, the transfer of ideas between them is effectively one way. These features combine to make the mech near indestructible and the pilots indefatigable. Feature Pataphysical Mantle Anomalous qualities Through an intense subliminal and mimetic propaganda campaign, 25% of the global population has developed the belief that the mech is divinely sent to slay LSAs. This has allowed it to pataphysically mantle the my theme of the character archetype, the Dragon Slayer. In addition to the anomalous subsystems and methods of construction that were used in the creation of the mech, it has been outfitted with various anomalous weapons. Weapon Beowulf Sigurd Rail Description A shoulder-mounted railgun. Rather than use electromagnetic forces, the Beowulf Sigurd Rail uses anomalously altered gravity to both fire and aim at targets. Targets are made dramatically more heavy causing projectiles to specifically impact them at superterminal velocities. Weapon Cold Iron Sword Description Primary weapon for combating entities Entire 20 meter long blade forged from cold iron provided by the High Brazil Royal Court, with a handle built around the blade without forging. Wounds inflicted by cold iron do not regenerate. Weapon Rounded Recoiling Plasma Description Held atop the mech as a hat, the weapon can be removed for ranged combat. The edges of the weapon are coated with plasma, which can be activated or deactivated upon user control. Electromagnets are built in the weapon, so the wielder can retain the weapon, should that be unable to be done manually. Weapon Thousand Word Arrows Seven poets constantly writing and reciting poems 
about the defeat and death of large monsters, broadcasted at high volume from the mech, empowers the pataphysical mantle and demoralizes enemies. Weapon Holdout Plasma Wrist Blade Superheated plasma magnetically held in the form of a blade attached to the right wrist of the mech, capable of cutting through almost all matter, but of limited combat application, intended for usage in emergency circumstances. Weapon Emergency Sun Vent Description As a last resort strategy, individual power vents to SCP-037 can be deactivated, releasing a fraction of the energy output contained within the power system's associated subdimension as a beam of energy. Due to the extreme potential for collateral damage when firing, this is only to be used as a last resort. Addendum 5514.2 Combat Encounters Following the development of the mech, it has been successfully deployed to engage various large-scale aggressors in physical combat. It has been universally successful in each of these deployments. Records of these tests follow. Test. Wake 02. Forward. On 2 August 1998, LSA Wake 02 emerged from the sea near Tokyo, attacking Combined Global Occult Coalition and Foundation forces. Alongside the appearance of LSA Wake 02, several other LSAs of a minor degree attacked the forces. Due to the severity of the situation, the mech was dispatched to combat these entities, despite the lack of prior testing. A total of 3,241 combined personnel were lost during this encounter. Begin log. The mech arrives in suborbit directly above Tokyo and drops down to planet side. Through the creation of counterbalanced gravitational forces, it quickly falls into the water of the bay. We have successfully deployed to Tokyo for our first combat test of SCP-5514. All capabilities ready to engage with the target. LSA Wake 2 is detected in the water, just to the south of the landing location. Based upon its movements, it appears to be preparing for another attack upon the Tokyo Harbor. Sensors have locked on to the target north of us, proceeding to combat. The mech navigates through the waters of the bay, paralleling the city coast. The city is currently in the process of evacuation, but many residents stop attempting to flee in order to gaze at the mech as it attempts to walk through the streets. Champion! Champion! Exult in the glory of the Dragon Slayer! Upon hearing the thousand-word arrows, LSA Wake 2 appears to halt its attack towards Tokyo Harbor. It instead backs away, making distance between the harbor and itself. A shriek originating from LSA Wake 2 is audible, and several other minor LSAs can be seen on the mech's radar. Looks like we pissed it off. Are there any targets that require immediate attention? Just Wake 2. Understood. Increasing weight sink integrity. The mech nears LSA Wake 2 and the other LSAs. It jumps into the air, removing the rounded recoiling plasma and throwing it at a nearby LSA. The plasma is activated, cleanly decapitating the entity. The electromagnets are subsequently activated, arcing the weapon dramatically. It hits several other LSAs before flying towards the mech. The plasma is deactivated, and the weapon is placed back in its original position. 
The vicious beasts slain. Gone to those which were once pain. The mech unsheathed the cold iron sword, directing it towards an LSA currently on the harbor as it falls to the ground. It stabs the heart of the entity, which shrieks and falls to the ground. The mech quickly draws the sword from the entity's body, slashing the throat of another minor LSA as it turns towards the harbor. Four o'clock to your right. The mech backs away from its position, then activates its flight systems remaining in the air. The second head of LSA Wake 02 can be seen protruding from the mouth of the first. An abnormal amount of saliva begins to drip from the mouth of the second head as it lets out a shriek. The many remaining minor LSAs cease attacking the Tokyo Harbor and instead direct their attention towards the mech. Feisty one, hey? The second head of LSA Wake 02 shoots out, extending just over 40 meters and barely missing the foot of the mech. A minor LSA scampers up the appendage, pouncing towards the mech, which blocks the attack with its sword and slashes the entity mid-air. The mech launches into the air and flies towards LSA Wake 02, using the Beowulf Sigurd rail to shoot at the eyes of the main head. LSA Wake 02 shrieks and retreats its appendage. The mech uses this moment to twist in the air and strike at the first head, decreasing the weight sink integrity in order to propel the momentum of the attack. The mech sweeps around and descends towards LSA Wake 02 before piercing its head, flying over it and drawing the blade down the LSA's serpentine body all the way to its caudal fin. Each half of its body squirms for a moment, but finally it lies still. And thus the deed was done. Exult! Exult! In the glory of the Dragon Slayer! The other minor LSAs stop attacking the Tokyo Harbor upon seeing the death of LSA Wake 02. They begin to retreat into the ocean, with the few remaining stragglers eliminated by the mech using the Beowulf Sigurd rail. Dr. Kiyori, Wake 02 has been eliminated. And SCP-5514 functioned exactly as designed. I think it's safe to say that the first test is a success. Test. Meta, 03. Forward. Shortly following Test Wake 02, several anti-memetic LSAs were reported in Montezuma, Georgia, United States. The population was quickly evacuated, and a perimeter was established around the town. After a near breach, the mech was dispatched to a field near the security perimeter. Begin log. With the counter-conceptual filters enabled, the LSAs manifest before the mech. There are five present. Each stands 200 meters tall, composed of spindly black legs that break off each other and splinter. Each only stands on two of these legs, raising the rest around it, poised to attack. Smaller spiders crawl upon the LSAs and fall to the ground. I've seen these before, near Site 41. We're lucky our filters could pick them up. I trust all combat capabilities already? Of course. The mech unsheathes its cold iron sword, dashing towards the nearest entity. The nearest entity is currently engaging and attacking individual humans on the ground and turns to face the mech mid-charge. It raises several arms into the air, motioning to attack, but the mech slices the arms in half with the sword. The mech closes the distance between it and the LSA. It stabs the entity in the midsection and cleaves it in half. The top half of the entity falls to the ground, but remains animate, attempting to stab the mech with its legs. The mech repeatedly stabs it with the sword, 
until it ceases to move. When the entity has been confirmed deceased, the mech takes a step back with the sword still impaling the entity in the ground. That was easier than expected. There was just the one? A smaller LSA leaps onto the mech, latching onto its shoulder. The mech engages its independent gravity field and flies into suborbit, tearing the entity off its shoulder and into the air. The mech engages its railgun and shoots the LSA, which plummets downward, crashes into the ground, and dies upon impact. The mech descends back down and retrieves its sword from the body of the previously terminated entity. It then stands up to confront the other entities, only for the counter-conceptual filters to begin failing. All of the opposing LSAs vanish from view, as does any evidence of their surroundings. Only the bodies of the two deceased entities remain. Dr. Kiori, I have suddenly forgotten why we're here. Something's wrong. Stay on your guard. The mech holds its sword out in front of it, slowly turning and looking for any signs of an enemy. However, there is nothing to be found. Suddenly, massive damage is inflicted to the rear of the mech, with no apparent source. The mech quickly whirls around, blindly slashing with a cold iron sword. Massive spider limbs fall to the ground. Suddenly, the entire scene is plunged into shadow, as the sun is blotted out by a new, massive entity flying above the battlefield. The entity appears as a massive serpent, covered in a plumage of feathers. This entity is a new LSA, not previously observed by the Foundation. What the hell is that? That is a snake with one, good doctor. The mech struggles to reboot filter systems, but they remain non-functional. The new entity descends to the level of the mech and coils around empty space, floating in midair. It then opens its mouth and clamps down hard causing a spider-like LSA to become visible in its jaws. The LSA briefly squirms before going limp. Watch your back. Before the mech can react, an unseen LSA latches onto its back. In the struggle of trying to rip it away, the mech falls to the ground. Hull damage is reported along the back armor plating. There are some things that even I cannot do. But I can help you see them, if you agree to be my ally, that is. Dr. Kaori requests backup and engages exterior communication systems in order to speak to the entity. How is that possible? The serpent never forgets. I remember the dawn of the universe. These insects cannot break my mind. Do you agree? Or should I leave you here to fend for yourselves? Kaori, stop. We don't have clearance for this kinds of- We agree. Good. The serpent's emerald eyes begin to glow white, and an apple appears in the mech cockpit before Dr. Kaori. She hesitates, but takes a bite. Immediately, all of the LSAs surrounding the serpent and the mech manifest visibly. There are four left, including the entity standing on the back of the mech. The serpent flips its tail and slams it into the entity on the back of the mech, sending it sprawling away before flattening it on the ground with another blow. It does not move again. The mech rises. The serpent lunges forward and begins to feast on another entity. The mech aims the Beowulf Sigurd rail at a third entity, with anomalously precise targeting aided by the serpent. A single shot is fired, punching directly through the LSA and killing it. The serpent coils around the final remaining entity, 
holding it in place. Strike this beast down and seal our pact. The mech manifests the holdout plasma wrist blade and slices the throat of the final entity. It gurgles weakly, struggling for a moment before it stops moving. With the death confirmed, the serpent releases its hold on it. Perseus, Mikasa, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Test. Brazil, 12. Forward. LSA Brazil 01 was hypothesized to be the cause of SCP-5391 and assigned as the highest priority threat. After it was spotted off the coast of Greenland, the mech was deployed in order to fight it. The serpent accompanied the mech to the site of the battle, acting as bait for LSA Brazil 01 as the largest and second most powerful LSA in the world at the time. Begin log. The mech stands on the shores of Greenland and walks out into the ocean, standing in the water up to its waist. The serpent emerges from the water and shakes off the dew, letting its rainbow plumage dry out. Together, they scan the horizon for any sign of LSA Brazil 01. This is where it was supposed to happen, is it not? This is where Quinn Crake was supposed to die ten years ago, before the doom of High Brazil. How do you know that? That is my role, is it not? To know of forbidden things. Oh, right. It's true. The Coalition tried to lure the beast here, to this exact bitch in the past. I don't know why they choose it again. I guess it still works just as well as it would have done. It will. The serpent rises into the air, floating next to the mech. Its tail drifts down into the water. Together, they begin to scan the horizon looking for LSA Brazil 01. As they wait, a storm cloud rolls in and begins to rain upon them. A few moments later, a division of the Jaeger bombers contacts Captain Rosales and alerts him that LSA Brazil 01 has been spotted, traveling to the location of the mech and the serpent, expected to arrive within minutes. Brace for impact. It's coming for us. The mech and the serpent enter battle stances. The storm obscures visibility preventing any visual contact of the ocean. LSA Brazil 01 is detected on the mech's radar, quickly approaching. The serpent looks through the storm, staring directly at the location of LSA Brazil 01. It is here. LSA Brazil 01 lunges out of the ocean and impacts the serpent. It is a massive crocodilian encephalopodic entity with a crocodilian head. It has five rear tentacles and five arms, Extensive cybernetic modifications have been made to it, replacing sections of its torso and skull. The pair wrap around each other, the serpent coiling around LSA Brazil 01, and LSA Brazil 01 wrapping its rear tentacles around the serpent. They sail through the air, crashing into the sand of the beach. Wrestling, the pair turns and crashes into each other, sending sand spraying out in multiple directions. The proper place for the beast to die. The final justice. The mech charges through the water, returning to the beach to assist the serpent. As it returns, it attempts to lock on to the LSA with the Beowulf Sigurd rail. But given the close proximity of LSA Brazil 01 and the serpent, it is unable to acquire a target lock, 
that is not likely to hit the serpent in the process. The mech arrives at the beach and grabs LSA Brazil 01, tearing it away from the serpent. The mech pulls LSA Brazil 01 into the air and hurls it down the beach, where it crashes into the water. It quickly rises and turns to face the pair. The mech draws its sword, holding it raised against LSA Brazil 01. It glances at the serpent, which has been bitten multiple times and is bleeding heavily. They are deep wounds, yes. But I will live. Do not worry about me. Very well. Be careful. The pair turn their attention back to LSA Brazil 01, which is swimming back to them slowly. Now that the shot is clear, the Sigurd Beowulf rail locks onto LSA Brazil 01 and fires. As the entity begins to stand, it is struck with two shots, which topple it. As a third shot is loaded, LSA Brazil 01 opens its mouth. LSA Brazil 01's open mouth begins to glow, alongside the cybernetic plating that's visible on its exterior. A small orb of blue light manifests within the open mouth, which then becomes a long, thin beam striking the Beowulf Sigurd rail, instantly melting it. LSA Brazil 01 closes its mouth and then resumes standing. All three parties charge toward each other. When they meet, LSA Brazil 01 grasps the serpent with two of its five arms, while using another two to grapple with the mech. The cold iron sword is knocked out of its hands and goes flying across the beach. The fifth arm slams onto the head of the mech repeatedly, causing the glass in the cockpit to fracture. Stay calm. That glass is designed to fracture but hold. Do you think this is too much for us, Percy? I'm not thinking about our odds. Just the best thing we can do. The mech activates the holdout plasma wrist blade, and after a short struggle, cuts the closest arm of LSA Brazil 01. It then proceeds to quickly cut off the other four arms in short order, before kicking LSA Brazil 01 to the ground. LSA Brazil 01 rolls across the beach, landing a short distance away from the serpent in the mech. It is already beginning to regenerate the severed arm. Bad news, serpent. We're out of plasma to pull that trick off again. We're funneling as much as we can from our solar heart, but I doubt we can do it again this fight. It is tougher than I expected. It does not die easily. As if in response, LSA Brazil 01 roars at the two. It lunges for the cold iron blade, grabbing it with its tentacles. As soon as the first arm is regenerated, the blade is handed to it. It brandishes the weapon, holding it out in front of itself, mimicking the stance the mech was previously using. LSA Brazil 01 lunges across the battlefield, moving even faster than before. It closes the distance to the mech and swings the sword at its legs. The sword shears through the legs, toppling the mech and causing it to crash to the ground. The sword rips in the process, mangled in the wreckage of the legs. LSA Brazil 01 drops the sword and turns to the serpent. LSA Brazil 01 uses its tentacles to propel itself into the air, landing on the serpent and tackling it to the ground. It rises atop the serpent, pinning its foe to the ground with all ten of its arms and tentacles. However, rather than attack the serpent, it raises its head to the sky and breathes a torrent of flame into the air. Systems are shutting down. Damn it! What can we do? The failsafe. We have to use it while we still can. The serpent won't last much longer. 
You're right. I didn't think it had come to this, but... The mech props itself up, angling its chest toward the head of LSA Brazil-01. The greatest weapon you can offer is that of your own heart. Fire. The emergency sun vent installed on the chest opens, venting fire and plasma produced by SCP-037 at LSA Brazil-01. The light produced by the firing of the sun vent is bright enough to obscure the entire battlefield, with only the roars of LSA Brazil-01 audible. The sun vent closes seconds later, and the mech crashes into the ground, with its power source disabled. The top half of LSA Brazil-01 has been disintegrated, and the remaining half falls limp into the water. The serpent rises from the ground, burnt but surviving. It floats above the corpse of LSA Brazil-01, observing it for any movement. It is done. Following the destruction of LSA Brazil-01 by the mech, the effects of SCP-5391 began to abate. Several other LSAs re-entered periods of dormancy, although activity was still significantly higher than prior to the beginning of SCP-5391. The ongoing MH-class scenario was declared partially abated. With the purpose of the mech fulfilled and the remaining hostile LSAs being terminated with the assistance of the Global Occult Coalition and the Serpent, SCP-5514 is only to be deployed in emergency situations at the request of the Overseer Council. It is noted that following the termination of LSA Brazil-01, all active LSA entities have demonstrated more docile, avoidant behavior. Further neutralization campaigns have not been deemed necessary. O5-1's chopper lands on the Site-40 helipad, and an unassuming man with near-transparent skin exits. Everyone turns to look at him as he walks through the site, although with enough respect to try and pretend they aren't. He notices, but extends the same respect to them, and doesn't act like he has. He's here to meet with the man and woman that saved the world, Captain Perseus Rosales and Dr. Mikasa Kaori. They piloted humanity's ultimate hope against the forces that would doom the world and emerge victorious. While their mech was ruined in the process, its shattered form had been brought to Site-40 and suspended atop an oil platform. The councilman walks up to the railing on the side of the platform where Rosales and Kaori are waiting. He perches himself on it, folding bony fingers around the edge, staring intensely at the mech in front of him. Rosales and Kaori exchange a glance before they approach their superior. You wanted to speak with us, sir? So I did. His voice is harsh but strong, almost as if it should be quiet, but is being amplified somehow. First of all, I must thank and congratulate you again for your actions in Greenland. You saved us all from certain doom. He takes a deep breath of the cold ocean air and pauses before he continues. But I have to ask... What are the chances that this could happen again? Have we truly saved the world for good or only on this one occasion? Can we let our guard down? Or do we have to pay more attention than ever? Mikasa gulps. She was afraid of this question. It can't happen again, sir. It'd be more easy than it was in the past. There are more monsters in the world now, more giants. And it'd be easier for one to take control now. Their bonds have been strengthened. 
The metal of the railing groans as 05-1 crushes it in his hands. His eyes burn with fire and fury as he stares at the ruined mech. Then the work is not over. Wringing out a washcloth, Quincy Ridge looks at himself in the mirror for a moment before rubbing it on his face, a much-needed refreshing chilliness against his warm skin. Tossing the cloth in the laundry bin, he glances at his watch. While working at Wilson's Wildlife Solutions usually felt fulfilling, everyone was acting a bit strange since all the giant monster stuff. At least he wasn't poor Mr. Wilson. He'd been trying to argue with the castaways, or, well, the Foundation now, that the monsters didn't deserve to be killed, using Cappy as an example that WWS could handle these sorts of things. Quincy had tried to tell him that there's a difference between a crocosquid murder machine and the doofy, sentient bath toy that is Cappy, but he still kept pushing on. And speaking of Cappy, she's Quincy's last animal to check on for the day. He walks over to the locker room sink and snatches up the bucket and sponge and sets off for her enclosure. As he draws closer to the fence, however, something is amiss. A short, chubby man in a purple suit sits on top of Cappy's head, scratching her gently. Who's a good fly murderer, he asks Cappy, who makes a little groan of happiness. You are. Good girl. Something feels off about the man's voice, like it's constantly wobbling, never consistent in pitch, topped off by the remnants of an accent Quincy just can't tack down. Polish, maybe? Before Quincy could ponder more, he pushes through the gate and calls out to the man. Hello? Are you supposed to be here? He turns, his face lighting up as he notices Quincy. One moment, good sir. Holding on to his black top hat, he slides down Cappy's back and hops over to Quincy with a crooked smile and yellow teeth. You must be Quincy, yes? Cappy told me so much about you. Yes, but how did... The man suddenly gasps. Where are my manners? I completely forgot to introduce myself. I am Dr. Cornelius Wondertainment of Dr. Wondertainment TM, but you can just call me Cornelius. He takes a bow. All right, so, uh, you made Cappy? I signed off on her shipment, although judging on how she's here and not in our Portland location, it appears that didn't go so well, huh? Well, that's beside the point. The people in charge of the shipment have been... He takes a pause, seconds too long, as if he's searching for the best way to convey his next words. Dealt with, yes. Quincy gulps and contemplates running off to phone the supervisors, but something tells him he doesn't have to be dealt with. Cutting to the chase, he musters a polite smile to Cornelius. So what are you here for? Cornelius reaches into a suit pocket and pulls out a small yellow scroll. I'm here to give you ownership of Cappy, of course. After seeing how much you've taken a liking to her, your child Harper especially, I just can't take her away from you all. That would be cruel. So instead, we're just going to call this whole situation a happy little accident, yes? Handing the scroll to Quincy, Cornelius gave his hand a little pat before letting go. So does this mean we can take pictures of her now? For a moment, Cornelius's face turns to a blank stare. Then he lets out a giggle. Why, yes, as long as they're not for commercial purposes. And if they are, all profits must be funded to Dr. Wondertainment, TM. Everything's outlined in that scroll. Now I'm afraid I must be going. Been quite busy with all this monster business, and it's almost time for our meeting on which ones to make realistic plushies out of. In fact, perhaps I could send a catalog your way? Afraid to say no. Quincy simply nods his head. Brilliant. Pulling out an umbrella from who knows where, Cornelius opens it and begins to float up into the sky. 
Goodbye, Quincy and Cappy. Have fun. Soon the man becomes nothing more than a dot in the sky, and eventually nothing at all. Quincy looks up for a few moments more before glancing over at Cappy. Well, that was sure something, wasn't it? But less crazy than a giant fly, I think. Cappy simply responds by sneezing, sending a mist of water into his face. A signal he knows means, give me a sponge bath now. Wiping his eyes, he sighs. You're never going to not want a sponge bath, will you? Cappy glances at him, then at her unscratched back, and Quincy already knows the answer. He looks down at the scroll in his hands and then tears it in half. It doesn't matter if he has some dumb scroll or not, everything's the same. And so, Quincy continues his routine, a small tang of happiness in his heart. It's been a week since the apocalypse came and went and Stanislav Nikolaev is still in Foundation custody. The way it's looking, he'll be spending the rest of his natural life in containment. They'll probably bring him before some committee and ring him up on charges for his crimes. After all, it really is his fault that this whole mess happened. That's the way it looks to the Foundation, at least. Stanislav sees things from a different perspective. He's got his ear on the ground listening in on the groans and aches of the Site-40 installation he's being kept in. He's got an escape plan, but he's only going to get the one chance. There's more than one prisoner in this joint. He's been paying attention when they bring him food. They always deliver it at the same time. And today, when they come, he's at the door and slams it down off the hinges into the guard. The guard goes down quick. He's not expecting a man nearly 60 to be this strong. But Stanislav made his life's work around the breeding of monsters, and in time, he figured out how to make himself one. The guard's out of it, lying on the ground and moaning in pain. Not unconscious, but he won't be doing anything to stop Stanislav. Good enough. Stanislav grabs his gun and runs down the hall. He doesn't need a weapon, since he has enough beneath his skin. But the gun will help intimidate any opponents he comes across. Can't convincingly intimidate somebody into thinking you'll rip him to shreds, when he don't look any different from anybody else. And Stanislav isn't in the mood to put his hands back together after the claws come out. The elevator doors aren't far away from his cell. This he remembered from when they took him in. They put a blindfold over him, but that only blocked out one of his senses. He still had the other eight. At this point, there's a good chance he knows the layout of the place better than some of the employees that work here. Not all, but a good few. Metal doors crumple in his hands. His skin is stretching tight as his internal shift and flex. He might have to repair his hands anyway. That makes the decision to grab the elevator cables to coast down much easier. It shreds the skin around his hands to pieces and exposes the chitin he has underneath. Good thing he decided he wanted that layer before the experiment, since he hasn't had the chance to change anything since. When he smashes the doors on the level he wants, he barely even looks human. Fortunately for him, and for his escape plans, even the most hardened researcher will still shit their pants at an unexpected horror monster crashing through their laboratory. A quick rampage, a little bullying, and they give him what he wants. There's a hangar in the lower levels of Site-40, right before it drops open to the ocean. It's been repurposed as a containment unit, holding a massive beetle the Foundation calls LSA Elizabeth-18. Stanislav himself doesn't have a name for it, but he knows it's a friend and also his ticket out of here. Stanislav crashes into the room holding it, and the creature turns to look at it. It stirs in excitement. Seconds later, the side of Site-40 explodes and a titan emerges. 
Stanislav rides atop the insect, which unfurls a pair of massive wings and chitters before taking off into the air. The pair cries out together as one. A feathered serpent of colossal size lazily drifts through the troposphere. It is worse for wear. Whole swaths of its plumage have been incinerated, with deep bite marks and gashes lining the rest of its body. But it's an old thing, and it has endured worse. It's not always been the only behemoth in existence. The giants that crawl the surface of the earth are only a fraction of the strength of what was once extant. But while they are less deadly, it is still enough to shake the firmament. And still, every so often, in a rare age, a beast climbs atop the rest of its rivals and touches upon the power to do even greater things. So it has happened before, so it will happen again. These are the thoughts of the serpent as it coasts on atmospheric winds. There's a way buried deep within the clouds, and this is how it will return home. There is some complicated method to activate it, but the serpent is the master key to all the gates and doesn't need to bother with the tools of mortals. It flies through the clouds and breaks through the dew. Its arrival into the library itself shocks all of the patrons who had gathered, completely unprepared to see the owner come home. They panic for a moment, moving around and trembling at the sight of the beast. It doesn't bother with them. It slips into a deep passage and floats down to the bottom, down to the deepest layers of the library, where it curls around the base of the old withered tree that supports it all. The serpent will not die, but it needs to rest for a long time. Knowing that it has saved the world, it closes its eyes and drifts off into a deep and wonderful dreaming. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, join my Discord community, hire me on Fiverr, or help support me by becoming a patron for as little as $3 a month. Regardless of tier, all patrons get early access to every single episode. The links are in the description. I don't have the talent it takes to write a skip. All I do is read. Original authors make this podcast possible. So, credit to the original author. Their link's in the description. Show them some love as well. Consider becoming a member of the SCP Wiki. Upvote their work and maybe write a skip of your own. Maybe I'll read it here someday. You never know if you never try. The content of this podcast and content relating to the SCP Foundation, including the SCP Foundation logo, is licensed under Creative Commons ShareLight 3.0, and all concepts originate from scpwiki.com and its authors. This recording, being derived from this content, is hereby also released under Creative Commons ShareLight 3.0. I'm Grigori Carpin from Simply Creative People, the podcast where we discuss GOIs, canons, and stories from the SCP Wiki, and we try to recommend things for all fans of the Wiki, new and old. Look for us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Visit the show page at anchor.fm slash simply-creative-people, or follow us on Twitter at S-I-M-C-R-E-A-T. Hey there, this is DJ Skip, host of Foundation After Midnight Radio, coming to you from the only third shift broadcast for personnel, by personnel. Be sure to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts to not miss out on containment news and community announcements from within the Foundation.